Seth told me I, I could speak on anything I, I wanted to today because we just finished Jonah. We're about to go into a new series. And I want to talk to you guys uh, about um, this guy by the name of King David in the Old Testament. We did a series actually on King David this past summer, if you were here for that. And uh, I want to share with you guys a portion of, of his story where he's found himself all alone in a cave with, with nobody else around him. It's just him, his pen, uh, a piece of paper, and the Lord in this cave. And uh, the, the story is actually found in 1 Samuel 22, but we're going to read from Psalm 142. What's really cool is the life of David, we get to see what he's doing in live action, but then in Psalms, we get the, like the behind-the-scenes interview with his thoughts and his prayers to the Lord. And so 1 Samuel 22 corresponds with, with Psalm 142. So that's where we're going to read from here today, okay? Starting in verse 1, if you're there with me, it says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. And you're going to see this isn't very encouraging, but I promise we're going to get to some encouragement today. He says, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, which is God, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare from me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, wait, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Verse 7, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. I mentioned a second ago that David finds himself in a cave in this story. Uh, to give this sermon a title, I guess you could just write this down if you, if you want to. When life feels like a cave. When life feels like a cave. The question I want to answer today is this. What do you do when life feels like a cave? Like as believers, what should be our response in faith when all of a sudden we look up and we don't know which direction to go. Okay, let's pray and then let's talk about it. Lord, we just love you so much. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in NLC Fayetteville and across the state at all 18 locations, God, and hundreds of other churches in Arkansas as well. Lord, I'm praying and believing that, God, we're just at the beginning of the years to come, Lord, where revival is going to break out in Arkansas, where a lot of people are going to know about you and hear about you, God, and those who are running from you, God, are going to come back to you. But Lord, I know it starts off with us just leaning into your word, and God, knowing what you have equipped us to do. So Lord, I pray that you would speak through me today, God. I pray you would just use me just as a vessel, and that's it. And I pray our hearts would be softened to hear this word in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right. Here's what we know about David. God chose David at a young age to be his king. And I have to admit, things start off really, really good for David. Like if David's life were a movie, the beginning would be the part where the movie's like upbeat music and everybody's happy and nothing's going wrong. The, the basketball team can't lose. And then before they know it, though, something all of a sudden turns around. There's a dilemma in the movie and to figure that out. Well, that's kind of where we're headed. But at first, uh, immediately, David is anointed as king and then he kills Goliath. He's not king yet. He's in training. He moves from shepherd boy to all of a sudden savior of an entire nation. He gets a serious promotion in the military. He meets so much success, not just in, in Israel, but uh, of surrounding nations. People are saying his name. The Bible says that people are singing his name in the streets. He meets a best friend by the name of Jonathan. 
He marries this girl named Michal, who happens to be the daughter of the king of Israel, King Saul. So he's one step away from the throne. And I know what you're thinking. If this is what it means to be anointed, like sign me up for that, right? But where we're headed today, there's actually an alteration in the story. Because the Bible says while people are singing songs about David in the streets, Saul hears those songs too. And the Bible says from that moment on, he's going to have a jealous eye on David, so much so that he's going to try to kill him two different times with his own spear. But David keeps avoiding these schemes. So Saul, through anger, makes it state policy that if anybody is to see David, that he is to be killed on sight. Therefore, David has no choice but to run all by himself out of the very kingdom that he was anointed to reign over. He has to leave his job. He loses his home. He has to leave his wife. He loses his best friend, his safety, his security, all within a matter of moments. The Bible says that he runs himself into the wilderness all the way until he finds himself alone in a cave. 1 Samuel 22 verse 1 says it this way, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Everybody say Adullam. I wanted y'all to say that because I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but now that you've said it, it helps me feel a little bit better about it, all right? So the cave of Adullam. Now, this isn't one of those nice caves that you can book out in Eureka Springs. Have y'all seen, look at this picture. Have y'all seen that you can now book out caves that are nicer than my house? And uh, they like have furnished them and everything. This isn't a cave like this. This is an old school uh, BC cave, probably more, more like this picture right here. The reason it's probably like this is because I, I searched on Google Cave of Adullam, and that's the very first option that showed up. And I was like, that, that could be it. And I know you're maybe judging me for my lack of research, but before you judge me too hard, just know that Seth writes his sermons on ChatGPT. So uh, don't, um, I'm kidding, he doesn't. Kendra writes his sermons for him. So that's, uh, that's a little better. Um, but no, this is where he finds himself. I think it's so interesting, church, that David really hadn't done anything to deserve this cave. Yet this is where he finds himself anyway. And how many of you guys know that even if you serve Jesus, even with your whole heart, you're still going to find caves from time to time. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have what? You will have trouble. I know it's been true in my life, even since I started serving the Lord I want to tell you a little bit about my story. Look, guys, I grew up in probably the best home you could ever think of. I've been so blessed. Two parents who've been married for 35 years. They've been pastors since I was born. I've been a pastor's kid my entire life. They're full of integrity. They've done everything they have, they have they've been able to, everything in their own power to point me and all my siblings towards Jesus. And uh, because of that, I got to meet Christ at a, at a really young age. Uh, I grew up a pastor's kid, like I said, I always tell people that I didn't choose uh, this life. This life chose me. You know what I'm saying? And I remember I took advantage of it as well. I grew up in, in the little kids ministry, five, six years old, and I took advantage of being a pastor's kid. I would tell all the volunteers back there that I was the pastor's son for more leverage for cookies and candy back there. And, uh, you know, it was like, man, they, they better suck up to me, right? You know, like give me some Reese's Pieces or whatever. And so my mom heard about that, and so she gave me a stern talking to. She was like, Tanner, that's not what we're going to do. We don't tell people that we're the pastor's son. From this point forward, you're just Tanner. And I said, okay, yes, ma'am. So it seems like a good idea, but the very next week, this lady came into the foyer of the church. And she said, hey, 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 aren't you the pastor's son? 
And I said, well, yeah, I thought I was, but my mom said I'm not. And uh, how many of y'all know that caused some disruption in the church in the early years? People were confused, right? I was starting scandals on accident. So we had to fix that quick. My dad was like, man, we need to, we got to take care of my son. So he took me to this production, hoping I would give my heart to the Lord. I was six years old. It was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. True story. All right. I don't know if anybody remembers this from the, from the 90s, early 2000s. I was six years old, but I think the, the, the production probably should have been rated PG-13 because I was terrified. All right. So what happens is there's this family of, of four and they get into a tragic car accident and, and two were saved. Two weren't. They all passed away. Well, two go to heaven and, and two go to hell. So they at first go to the stage, and they show what heaven's going to be like. And it's just what you would imagine it to be like. They walk in the pearly gates, and they get greeted by Paul and Peter, and Jesus is there dapping people up, hitting the gritty. If you don't know what that means, it just means Jesus shaking hands and dancing, all right? So he's, like, hanging around with everybody. It's really cool. And then all of a sudden, again, alteration in the story, they pan over to the other side of the stage. And over here, it's dark, and there's fire, and you got Satan with his little, like, red horn sticking up, and he's just kicking people to the curb. And I'm shaking in my chair because I know I haven't accepted Christ into my heart. This is the first realization I had of that. So at the very end of the play, this guy gets up with a microphone and this deep voice. He says, what decision will you make tonight? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I walk out. I'm shaking towards because I know we're getting closer to the truck. And I remember the play. And they got in a terrible car accident. I'm like, I ain't getting in that truck. So I get to the car. I can't open the handle. My dad says, son, get in. I said, dad, I'm not getting in. He said, why? I said, I'm terrified. He's like, son, we're not going to get in the car wreck. I said, dad, it's not the car wreck I'm terrified of. It's hell that I'm terrified of. And he said, well, do you want to pray to accept Christ? And I said, yes, sir. Absolutely, I do. So we prayed right there. I accepted Christ into my life. My mom likes to joke and say that that play scared the hell out of me. Literally, it did. Um, it's not a cuss word, I don't think. I think it's used in proper context, right, Seth? Sorry. Um, anyway, don't text my dad. So um, please don't. Um, <laughs> but I know it was genuine. I do know. Because from that moment forward, I was just like eager to tell people about Christ. But my dilemma as a six-year-old six is that I was in, or going into the first grade, I was homeschooled, and I was a pastor's kid, so my only time was spent at home and at church, so I knew nobody that was unsaved except for my little sister, Grace. She was three years old, and I knew she was a sinner. She would steal my Cheerios. <laughs> she would disobey mom and dad, so I'd go around all day long witnessing to her, and, and she never did accept Christ until later on in life, obviously. I remember I'd go to mom, like, Mom, Grace has to accept Jesus. I've seen the play. It's bad news over there. And mom said, let's just get her out of diapers, and then we'll have a conversation with her, all right, son? And so that, that, that's my story, right? And I grew up in the church, and man, I wish I could say, though, that from that moment forward, after accepting the Lord into my life, that like, I've never faced any caves. And I'm going to get even more real at the end of the sermon, telling y'all about the worst one I've ever been in. But even serving God with, with all of my heart, there's still this cave that, man, I've become a little too familiar with that I go into periodically, for me, and it could be different for everybody, I don't know what your cave is, but for me, it's a cave of, of mental warfare, even torment at times. A cave that doesn't really make sense to me. It's never truly justified. Like, I don't know why I'm walking through it. I can't really tell you what leads to that. But for me, it's a cave called anxiety. Uh, that at times, out of nowhere, uh, a thought just hits my head, 
and I dwell on it instead of giving it to the Lord immediately. And I can tell you all how it feels. It's, it's the worst days that I have. It starts off with a thought that leads to like a knot in my stomach that leads then to a rising pressure in my chest. And I'll buy into lies. Like, man, I'm the only one going through this. I'm all alone. I should just isolate myself and fight through this by myself to make it through this alone. How many of y'all know that's probably the worst thing ever to do? Now, fast forward now to this point in my life. I can say when it comes to that cave that I'm familiar with, I am stronger this year than I was last year. And I was stronger last year than I was the year before that. But what's, what, what's your cave? Like, everybody's caves look different. And the second question to that is, what do we do when we find ourselves in a cave? What, what do you do when life was going good, but now all of a sudden you're in pain? But what do you do when you lose your job absolutely out of nowhere or when you break up with him or when you break up with her and you knew it was the right thing to do, but you're still facing loneliness and pain? But what do you do when you're running towards God with all you have, but the people surrounding you are running away from God with all that they have and there's pain involved with that? But what do you do when you moved up here for college, anticipating this to be the best season of your life? And even though you know you're here for a reason, you're still battling homesickness. What, what, what do you do when this happens? Well, Psalm 142, thankfully, it gives us the game plan. David writes out exactly what we're supposed to do anytime we go into a cave in this life. Remember, this message is not intended to discourage you guys but meant to encourage y'all because David had his highs and lows in his life. But what we learn about him is that even in his lows, David knew exactly what to do. So let's go back through this together and let's go a little bit slower this time. Verse one of Psalm 142 says this, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. What's the first thing you do when you find yourself in a cave? If you wanna write this down, you can. You just got to start by looking to God. Just look to him. You know, a lot of people, they get into a cave and they look to a relationship or a drink, a drug, pornography, just something to help dull the pain. But if y'all could just hear anything today, it, it would be to tell y'all this. None of that will do. There's only one that will heal, and it's him. For some reason, we're really good at looking out there for healing. We're really good at looking out there for some type of medication for caves. But God says, no, I need you to look up here. And I, and I know this seems like Sunday school stuff. Look to God. Yeah, Tanner, I've heard that my whole life. But man, seriously, Christians forget to do this first. In fact, sometimes we do this last. It's like we forget that Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I alone will give you rest. So David, thank God he understood this. And so he starts off by looking to him. That's the first thing. Just look to him, even if it's a prayer in your car. God, I know I'm going through what seems like turmoil. I know it hurts right now, but God, I'm looking to you. I'm just looking your direction. That's the first thing you got to do. But what's the second thing? Number two, you got to get honest. So you're going to start off by looking to him. And then you're going to get honest with him. David was really good at getting honest with God. Seems like complaints in, in this scripture, but I just want you all to see what it says here. Verse 2, I pour out my complaints before him, in fact. So therefore, if it's written in scripture, it must be okay for us to do, right? I pour out my complaints before him and tell him all my troubles. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. Verse 4, 
I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. Hear my cry, for I am very low. He's saying, I cry, I plead, I have complaints, I have troubles, I'm overwhelmed, no one will help me, no one cares. And I know it's not encouraging to read, but what is he doing? He's getting honest with God. I don't know why. But somewhere along the way, me included, it's like somewhere along our faith journey, we find it offensive to lament and get honest in our prayers to God. Like as if we have to have some type of polished, perfect prayer or potless and polished, perfect life before we go to him in prayer. Some people, uh, their only prayers are KJV prayers. Y'all know anybody that prays in the KJV translation? Um, they always have an accent. I don't know why, but they say stuff like, Oh, Lord, I commend thy spirit to you in the midst of thy trying destitution and the Father and Son, Holy. It's like, man, why are you praying like that, you know? And uh, I just think God, honestly, just cares a whole lot more about your honesty than that type of prayer, okay? If you pray like that, that's fine, but God wants you to get honest with him. I think a lot of us struggle with honesty because honesty is uncomfortable, it's like when somebody starts off a sentence with, hey, um, no offense, but you just know the next thing they say is about to hurt so badly, right? It's going to be offensive. Uh, my, nine, my nine-year-old cousin, she offended me not long ago. And um, so she, she and her family, they moved away, and then they came back to visit us. I haven't seen her in four five years. It's been a while. She has no idea what I do for a living. Remember, I'm a full-time youth pastor. For some reason, youth pastors get called dorks, at least by students, all the time. They think I'm a cheese ball. I don't know what it is. So I'm always trying to be cooler, you know what I mean? Keep up with the times. Well, this girl walks in. Haven't seen her in five years. She's nine years old. She comes up to me, and the very first thing she says is, uh, hey, Tanner, no offense, but you're giving off serious youth pastor vibes right now. <laughs> I was like, well, you're giving off serious brat vibes right now. And then I walked away, and I was like, is it my hair? Is it the way I'm dressed? I was like so insecure, you know? Like, I need to go fix something, right? I just want y'all to know, when it comes to our prayers to God, you can't say, hey, God, no offense, and then expect for him to get offended by whatever you say next, right? He can handle your honesty. In fact, he craves your honesty. Why? Because honesty matches God's character. The Bible says that God is the truth. Now, I think the only way you can be the truth is if you're honest. So if it matches God's character, don't you think he wants, he wants us to match that same character as well? Because what happens is as we match God's character, as we begin to say things the way that God says things, as we begin to act the way that God acts, then in return, God will give us the ability to be able to see things the way that he sees things. This is important because now we're getting into the part of the story of why David is in this cave in the first place. So I just want you guys to know when you're in a cave, you got to look to God. You got to get honest. And here's where things start to change. Because if you look to him and you get honest, number three, you're going to get perspective. You're going to get perspective. This may encourage you or at least challenge you a little bit at this point in this process. Psalm 142 Verses four through five. Verse four first. He's still honest here. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And again, this is the recipe. Just get honest with God. He'll begin to change our perspective. Look at the change in David's voice here. Verse five. I cry to you, Lord. I say, wait a second. 
You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. See, God is opening up David's eyes to something crucial. Because the current king, King Saul, uh, his biggest weakness is that he never truly understood how to live out that statement. God, you are my refuge. Instead, Saul put his refuge, placed his identity in things like successes, victories out on the battlefield, fame, and fans. And what broke God's heart is when Saul idolized those things over his relationship with God. And so that's why David is in the cave, don't y'all see? To mold him into the very king that God wanted King Saul to be in the first place. That out there, God was going to give David the ability to have successes on the battleground. But man, in the cave, God had to use that season to forge him into a man after God's own heart. In other words, it took the cave to work out the Saul-like tendencies inside of David. So that's why he's in there. Jesus speaks to this exact same topic, y'all. John 15, 2, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So, so God may be trying to take some things out of your life right now, church. And, and I'm just here to say, if that's happening, that's okay. Because according to scripture, it's to forge you. It's to prepare you for what's next. And God only uses or best uses caves and difficult seasons to do that. You know what a harder season was for me in my life? And it's silly to joke about now because it seems like a first world problem, but one of the harder seasons for me in my life was whenever my older brother was my boss. Why? Because he was my older brother. And so whenever an older sibling has to become your boss or any sibling becomes your boss, you have to take uh, orders from them and listen to them. You can only think about all the times they beat you up growing up, right? And so whenever I realized that he was going to be my boss, even though he was apparently a, a man of God at that point, I don't know, we'll see, time will tell. And um, no, I'm kidding, he's fine. Even though that was the case, um, I remember just initially thinking, I don't want to listen to my older brother. I'm cooler, cooler than my older brother. We were, he was a youth pastor. I was like, I got a better jump shot than him. Like, I'm a better athlete. People like me more. I'm just thinking all these things in the back of my mind. And I know what you're thinking, Tanner, that's awfully cocky. And yes, it, it was, but I'm going somewhere with it. You ready? After following my brother around for a day, one day, just one day, it was apparent to me that even though I thought I had talent, I thought I did, my brother had something more important, character and integrity. And listen, even if the talent that I thought I had was true, talent is wasted without godly character and integrity. Ask all the football players that play for Texas A&M. They'll tell you the same thing. They go four and eight every year, right? Um, that's, y'all can laugh at that, guys. All right, A&M is bad. We don't like them. So God placed me in that season for a reason, to just teach me something. What could God be working on inside of you right now that can't go with you to where he wants to take you next? What, what, is, he, what is he trying to open up your mind to? What is he trying to change your perspective on? Because listen, when you look to God, and when you get honest with God, and when he begins to change your perspective, then last but not least, he's going to ask you to get going. That's number four. Psalm 142, verse 7. This may be my favorite part of this passage of scripture. It says, set me free from my prison. Everybody say prison. prison. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. You see, what keeps people from going, this fourth and final point, 
is that some people have turned a cave, listen, into a prison. Like your cave has just become part of who you are. Something temporary has turned into something more so permanent. Maybe you got hurt years back, and now you've got walls up to people who could help you if you let them in. Or maybe your past is ugly, like you've been in a lot of caves, maybe caves that you've walked into, caves that didn't just happen, like you, you pur- purposely got there or your choices led there. Maybe you've been there and there's shame from that. And the shame is, is making it feel like it's still part of your present, even though it's your past. No one can avoid a cave, right? But whether or not you turn it into a prison is totally up to you. I, I think of the Israelites. God had a promise for them, the promised land. Before they went to the promised land, they went through the wilderness. You could say this was their cave for a while. God had to, had to reteach them how to serve him, how to look to him, how to get honest with him. But quickly in that season, while they're in the wilderness, their cave, per se, they turned away from God. And that process, that, that cave that was supposed to take just weeks, ended up taking 40 years Which shows me this, guys. Look, we can't speed up a cave process. God may have us there for a certain amount of time for a reason, but you do have the power to slow it down. That's totally up to you. The darkest cave of of my life was was self-initiated. When I was 14 years old, I just opened up the, the, the door of my heart to sin. Genesis actually talks about this. It says that sin is just crouching at the door, waiting to come in. The Bible says that Satan is on the prowl like a lion. He's out to kill, steal, and destroy your calling, your identity, your purpose. And so I opened up the door to my heart to sin. And, and I just remember what that led to, led to shame in my life. First night ever, I remember making rebellious choices. I mean, you can think about every possibility. I went home the, the next day, and instead of having a, a conversation with my mom like I would have every Saturday morning, For the first time ever, I wanted to avoid that conversation because of shame. Sin will make you run away from relationships that can heal you and make you run towards things that can kill you. And so the shame just just made me just start taking steps away from God, 15 years old, greater steps away from him, 16 years old, even greater steps. Now, 17 years old, I'm running from God. 18 years old, I'm running as hard as I can away from God until finally 19 years old, I hit a cave. That cave was called depression. I was there for three or four weeks, maybe even closer to two months. Two miles away from this exact room right now in my fraternity house on Stadium Row. And I remember sitting up there making just horrible choices finally decided to humble myself and say, God, I'm going to look to you because I've looked everywhere else. I have to have you talk to me. I have to have you speak to me. And I got honest with him for the first time since I was 14. The first thing he asked me to do was get honest with somebody else. Because James says that, man, if we go to the Lord, he'll forgive you. But if you start talking to other people, he'll begin to heal you. So I I called my dad and I said, dad, I've been lying to you for five years I just got to let you know this double life I'm living. I'm doing one thing on the surface, but dad, I'm addicted to things behind the scenes. I remember he gave me a lot of grace. And then the Lord, the Lord gave me perspective. He said, Tanner, you just haven't been living for me. 
if you just put your trust back in me, I'll give you a remedy I'll, in just a second. I'll show you what to do. But he said, if you just look to me, if you get honest with me daily, I'll give you perspective, and then I'm going to ask you to get going. That's exactly what he did. 19, I finally said, oh, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. I got going into my calling. So I, I left here. This, is, this isn't what I'm telling y'all to do. I, I think your calling is right here. But what is it here that God has been asking you to do that you're not doing? That, 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 that's where I'm going with this right now. So I want to help you with the get going part. You ready? This is the last thing. This is for anybody. Eight to 80 years old in here. There's this guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. He survived the Holocaust. Maybe you've read some of his books. They're powerful, man. One of the worst things that's ever happened to humanity, he survived it. He goes back to Austria, Vienna, Austria, his hometown. He was a psychiatrist before the Holocaust. He was a Jew himself. And then he decided after he was going to dedicate all of his time to helping out other patients who survived the Holocaust but were now dealing with PTSD from all the experiences they had to go through. And so he created this, this remedy, this solution, this, this therapy to help people through. And y'all, he's not even a, a believer, but the, the therapy he wrote is so biblical, and I don't even know if he knew it. And so what he said is that I'm going to give y'all three steps. He says, everybody that, that comes into my course, I'm going to let y'all know, and we're going to figure out a way to live this out. He said that life is rooted in meaningful work with a community of friends. By taking your pain, sometimes even your current pain, and using it to help somebody else who is currently going through the same pain. All right, I don't know if you caught it, but the therapy he, he created, the therapy he wrote is literally what we try to do in church every single week. <laughs> we got serve groups. That's why we always challenge people to serve. Like, man, I know you're going through stuff. Just start serving people. Quickly, you'll get your mind off of yourself, and your mind will be on other people. It's going to help you out. With friends, I'm so happy that, or so thankful that when, whenever I serve, at least the last four or five years that I've been serving in student ministry in Little Rock, I've looked up and just realized I'm serving now with my best friends. Because God will use a season like that to speed up a relationship, a friendship process, and people that you're sweating with and serving with and dreaming with will quickly become your best friends. And the way that we do that is by using our stories and our experiences, our, our testimony, how God has helped us, what God has led us through to now help other people as well. And the reason I'm telling y'all this, the reason I'm saying you gotta do meaningful work with people beside you, sharing your story, is because no believer does this weekly and stays in a cave. No believer does. And you'll know that you're coming out of a cave when you're not focusing so much on your cave anymore but now you're starting to notice other people's. And you're like, wait a second, I've been there. I think I can help, I think I can help you. The most important step, though, that Viktor Frankl forgot is that none of this is possible without a relationship with Christ. It, it's got to be rooted in that. It's got to be started there. Jesus, man, can't he empathize with every single thing we've gone through? Even Jesus was in a cave for three days, right? A tomb. He was crucified on a cross on Friday and three days later bursted out of that cave so that he could help free his children from their own personal caves for the rest of eternity. And so I just want you guys to know that, man, if, if you're in a cave right now, I want to pray with you in a minute, 
But before any of that, I want to give some people an opportunity to respond to this message by saying, I just, I just need to start with Jesus.